I think it's a wonderful thing sometimes in the Christmas season to take the Sundays out before Christmas and do a special uh, series of sermons on Christmas and sort of preparing our hearts for it. But that's not what I'm doing this December season. I am just so taken with how our section in the book of Hebrews is glorifying Jesus and putting him front and center that I've decided that at least on this particular Sunday, we're just going to continue right on in our text. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at verse 15. Would you look at it with me? It says, And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now, when he says there in verse 15, For this reason, he has in mind what he's been previously making the case for, what we take a look at last week in the book of Hebrews. The reason is simply this, the greatness, the superiority of Jesus and his work on our behalf in heaven. That compared to what the priests under the order of Aaron did in an earthly tabernacle. When you compare what Jesus did for us in heaven... To what an earthly priest did in an earthly tabernacle, the work of Jesus is so much greater. And for this reason, look at it there in verse 15. He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. Well, that's his role. Now he's the mediator. And Jesus's work as a mediator was fundamentally accomplished by his death. Did you notice that phrasing in verse 15? He is the mediator of new covenant by means of death. In other words, if he had not died for our sins, he wouldn't be appropriate. He wouldn't be able to serve as the mediator, as the one that stood between God and man. His heavenly work as the mediator looks back to the perfect sacrifice he made for us on Calvary. And that's why he says here in verse 15, for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant. What Jesus did in making the new covenant also looked back and brought everybody who trusted in God and the sacrifice that was made in anticipation of the perfect sacrifice. It brought them into right place with God once again. Now, going on in verse 16, he says, for where there is a testament, there must be also of necessity the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. And I think this is very interesting in verse 16. At least it's interesting to me. The word that's translated testament there in verse 16, at least in the New King James Version, it is the exact same ancient Greek word that's translated covenant in the verse before there's no difference in the two words and that's why different translations deal with it in different ways in the new king james it says for where there is a testament the esv says this for where a will is involved the new living translation says when someone leaves a will the new american standard says for where a covenant is now it's the same word for a covenant But it also has in its mind the idea of a last will and testament. What's interesting about this, and you know how language works. Sometimes in one language they have a word that's broader in one language than in another language. Well, in this ancient Greek vocabulary, they use the same word for a covenant or a contract 
And they use that same word for someone's last will and testament. Here it has in its mind the idea of a last will and testament, something that does not come into effect until the person dies. And that's why he says there in verse 17, for a testament is in force after men are dead. In other words, you know how it works with the last will and testament? That it only goes into effect after the person for whom it's concerned has died. What he's saying is this is exactly the same thing with the work of Jesus on our behalf. The work of Jesus on our behalf is like a testament. In other words, he willed us something. He gave us his last will and testament, the new covenant. And that's why we now have a new relationship with God. It was in his will. How about this? It's your inheritance. It's what you receive in the will because of his death. Now, by the way, you have in your Bible, don't you have a section called the Old Testament and the New Testament? You ever wonder why it's called that? It's called it basically because of these verses, because of this concept of testament and covenant being pretty much the same thing, both in the ancient Greek and in the ancient or the uh, archaic, let's say, Latin language. And because of that thing, that's why they call it. But, you know, your Bible could just as accurately be titled Old Covenant, New Covenant instead of Old Testament, New Testament. Matter of fact, I think probably a more precise way to refer to the divisions in your Bible is not so much uh, Old Testament, New Testament, or Old Covenant, New Covenant. How about this? Hebrew Scriptures, Greek Scriptures. Because really, that's the idea. But anyway, we come now to verse 18, where he's really going to emphasize something that's important here. Look at this, verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept, To all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Friends, when you see starting here at verse 18 and extending all the way through to verse 22, he's talking about the blood of the covenant. I realize that we're dealing with something that's actually, I mean, look, I kind of want to take away the religious trappings of it. And let's realize we're talking about something that's fairly gross here. Blood is an unpleasant subject to talk about. But he wants us to understand the central place of the shedding of blood in the making of covenant. Look at it right there in verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. Clearly, death was part of the old covenant. When the old covenant was made with Israel and God at Mount Sinai, Animals are sacrificed. Blood was shed. Blood was applied to the book, to the people, to the tabernacle. Blood made and sealed that covenant. And might I say, those poor animals that died didn't do anything wrong. Yet there had to be the sacrifice of an innocent victim to be a substitute to cover the sin so that the covenant could be made. The principle is very clear here and it's very strong. Covenant needs to be sealed by blood. And obviously, friends, you know what this is speaking about? This looks forward to what we call and what the writer of the Hebrews calls the blood of Jesus. 
Now, I need to speak with you a little bit about this idea of the blood of Jesus. When we speak about the blood of Jesus, we can't slip into cliches. We can't slip into magical thinking. We can't slip into superstition. Because, friends, when we talk about the blood of Jesus, please understand me. You've got to listen to me for a few minutes here so you follow my thought all the way to the end. It's not the literal blood of Jesus that saves us. If somebody were to have miraculously preserved through the centuries a vial well-preserved of the actual blood of Jesus, and if I were to bring it to you and sprinkle some of it upon a person today, it wouldn't save them. Matter of fact, where there are not Roman soldiers who were doing the work of crucifying our Savior, who were splattered with his very blood as they pounded those stakes through his hands and through his uh, feet. Did not probably the Roman soldier who pierced his side get a splash of blood upon him? Probably so. Yet that was not automatically salvation. No, friends. It's not the literal application of the literal blood. But what it is, is it's the literal death of Jesus on our behalf. And what the blood of Jesus represents, it represents his poured out life and his death for us. And it was the literal death of a literal savior on the cross that is our salvation. Now, when you think about this, the blood of every human being has value. When you see a tragedy happen in front of you, some accident or mishap, And a person, let's say, is on the ground and wounded. It's bad. You feel bad for them. How much worse is it if you feel, if you see blood flowing from a wound? Doesn't it freak you out a little bit? Whoa! People who were once had a lot of resolve and sort of a steely determination. Yes, I can handle the crisis. At the sight of blood, they can lose it. Because we recognize there's something important, there's something precious about blood. Friends, this isn't just true of human life. We would recognize it as well, even of animal life. If you see a poor animal lying in the street, how much worse is it if you see blood flowing from their wounds? And so blood, we understand it has an instinctive importance to us. It stands for the person's life. And when it is poured out, it indicates their death. Christianity, in this one sense, makes a preposterous claim. I got to admit, it's a strange claim. You know what we claim? We claim that the blood of one man who died some 2,000 years ago is of infinitely more value than the blood of anybody else who's ever walked this earth. And isn't that a strange thing to say? I don't, I wouldn't despise somebody who would come in from the outside and just look at it and say, what a strange religion you have. You take this one man, you master his life, his death, his blood matters so much more than anybody else's. Because listen, let me tell you then, a Jewish man from Galilee died on a cross. And there was nothing unusual in that. Thousands of Jewish men from Galilee died on crosses. There was nothing unusual about somebody being crucified. No, no. But what we are so bold to claim, and even though it sounds preposterous in the ears of some, we understand that that man's life and death, indeed the blood that represents his life and death, was different by every, every degree possible. His death was different because he was different. He's the mediator. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. 
He's God the Son. His death was different because it was planned for and it was predicted. You could look in the pages of the Old Testament and thousands of years before the fact, his, his death was planned for and predicted. His death was different because he knowingly offered his own life as a substitute, not simply a martyr for a cause, even though that would be noble in itself, but far more than just a martyr for a cause. He offered his life knowingly as a substitute for sin. And his death was different because it made a new covenant between God and man. And his death is different because it changes lives even to this day. Isn't that remarkable? But this is what we say about Jesus himself, that his life and his death is different. But don't miss this phrase in verse 22. It says, without shedding of blood, there is no remission. You understand what he means about remission? It's funny. When we use the word remission today, how do we normally use it? In terms of cancer, don't we? Somebody's in remission because of cancer. In other words, when somebody is in remission under cancer, at least for that time, the threat of death from cancer is at least put away temporarily. What he's talking about here is not remission from cancer, but remission from something even more severe than cancer. He's talking about remission from sin. And what he's saying is that there is no remission from the penalty and from the guilt of sin without the shedding of blood. Does this seem strange to you? Do you realize that from the very beginning of the Bible, it was so from the very beginning, there's Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden transgressed God's law. They disobeyed God's command. You could say that Eve did it under deception, but Adam did it knowingly. But nevertheless, there they were standing as guilty sinners before a righteous God. God told them not to do something and they did it. And what did they do in response to their own sense of guilt and shame? What did they do? They hid and they made themselves coverings made of fig leaves, which I understand are very itchy and uncomfortable and not very smart to use as coverings in that particular way. Do you know what the book of Genesis says? It says that after God confronted their sin and confronted their tempter, Satan himself, It says that God made them skins from animals and covered them. Now, I I don't mean to sound flippant with this, but the animals that gave up their skins didn't do it willingly. God made a sacrifice of animals that were slain for the sin of Adam and Eve, and he covered them literally with those skins of animals. From the very beginning, there was no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. But it's common for people today to think that sin is remitted or forgiven or taken care of in many different ways. You know how a lot of people think that sin is forgiven or remitted today? They think that God just overlooks it. That God just has sort of an ollie-ollie income-free policy. And on a certain day at a certain time, usually they, they, God says, all right, all those rules I had about the Ten Commandments and all that righteousness, oh, just forget it just for this one day. That's not how it works. And even though you may conceive in your mind God to be a grandfatherly old gentleman sitting on a rocking chair in heaven, finally just saying, OK, all those rules I made, they were just suggestions in the end. That's not how God operates. 
Because it is true, friends, it is absolutely true that God is a God of love and he loves you passionately. He loves you very deeply. It's absolutely true. But God is also righteous. And God is also a fair judge. And what would you think of a judge that had a guilty criminal right before him and the judge just said, well, let's forget about the law book and it'll be ollie ollie income free day. You would say that's an unrighteous judge. Judge, you're not administering the law the way that you should, but God does administer the law the way that he should. Other people think that, that uh, uh, sin will be remitted or forgiven because good works and decent lives will cancel out or will overcome whatever guilt the sinner has. I remember this. I remember this as a little boy in catechism class. I remember the teacher of the catechism class who happened to be a nun, a very nice woman, but this is what she said to me. And I'll never forget, this is probably the only thing I remember from catechism class. She said that getting to heaven was like climbing a ladder. Every time you do something good, you take a step up. Every time you do something bad, you take a step down. All you have to do is have enough good steps to outweigh your bad, and you'll climb the ladder to heaven. God bless that dear woman, but she was painfully wrong about that. That's not what the Bible says. And and, and it doesn't matter. You you just try this yourself. The next time you're pulled over a speeding ticket, try telling the police officer all the times that you obeyed the speed limit. (laughs) You say, what, you obeyed the speed limit a hundred times and you just disobeyed it this once? Well, of course, I'll let you off this time. Does it work that way? No, it doesn't work that way either before a righteous God. Some people think that religious observance can remit their sins. Other people think that the passing of time, that if it happened a long time ago, surely God has forgotten about it. I know I've forgotten about it. It must be that God's forgotten about it. But friends, none of those things matter. Your religious observance won't make your sin go away. The passing of time won't make your sin go away. Your good works won't make your sin go away. Uh, Some benign niceness, ollie-ollie income-free attitude on God, it won't make your sins go away. But no, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And there is no perfect forgiveness without a perfect sacrifice. Let's go on now to verse 23 where he says this. Therefore... It was necessary that the copies of the things in heaven should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ was not has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. I love his argument there in verse 23. You know, those animal sacrifices of calves and of bulls. Yeah, that was fine for an earthly tabernacle. Great. Okay, good. Bring the blood of the bull. Bring the blood of the calf to the earthly tabernacle. But if you're going to satisfy the righteousness of God in heaven, you better come with a better sacrifice than that. And he came with the sacrifice of a perfect man, of God made man, of the second Adam, the Adam that passed the test. A faithful Jesus who laid his life down as a sacrifice for us. It was his shed blood that satisfied the Father in heaven and made him able to righteously extend forgiveness unto us. There's a phrase there at the end of verse 24 that I'm just sort of enthralled by. Can you take a look at it with me? It says here, verse 24, Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Isn't that beautiful? 
He appears in the presence of God, Jesus, our Messiah and Savior. For all those who come to him by the new covenant, for all those who put their trust in him, he appears before God the Father for us, not against us. Isn't that beautiful? It reminds me of that great statement in Romans chapter 8. If God be for us, who can be against us? And I don't know who's against you in your life. Maybe a lot of people. Maybe a lot of circumstances. But there is a great mediator in heaven who is for you. And he appears before God the Father on your behalf, pleading your case, defending you before the accuser of the brethren, interceding for you, praying for you all the time. It is wonderful. It's amazing to think that he is there in heaven for us. Now, let's take a look at this last section before the end of the chapter. Verse 25. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Friends, there's a lot to unpack in those four verses. Should we walk through them again? Look now again at verse 25, where he says this, not that he should offer himself often, Now, Jesus' work for us in heaven continues. He continues working on behalf of his people, but not in the sense of continuing offering a new sacrifice. The sacrifice he did on the cross was once and for all. It was a perfect sacrifice. It perfectly fulfilled God's requirement. And it is a once for all, finished it all sacrifice. You see, it doesn't continue in the sense, look at it there in verse 25, that he should often himself, offer himself often. His sacrifice was perfect and once for all. Now, friends, I need to make a statement because it's very relevant to our passage regarding what I think is a severe error in Roman Catholic theology. I want you to know, I I don't consider myself to be anti-Roman Catholic. I do know that there are dearly beloved, born-again brothers and sisters within the Roman Catholic Church. Yet, nevertheless, I have to be very frank with you. There are certain points which I think that Roman Catholic doctrine is in great error. And let me point out what I believe to be one of these points right here. It has to do with the whole theology of the Mass, When the mass is celebrated at a Roman Catholic church by a Roman Catholic priest, the idea, the theology behind the mass is that it is a continual re-offering of the work of Jesus on the cross. That Jesus is being crucified again, again and again. That because they believe that that bread actually becomes the body of Jesus and the wine becomes his actual blood, that he is crucified again and again every time that the mass is practiced. Friends, I have to say that I disagree with this strongly based on many passages of Scripture, but this particular one in principle. Because the Scriptures make it very plain. Look at it there in verse 25. Not that he should offer himself Often the work of Jesus was once for all. And when we partake of communion together, which, by the way, we will this morning. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it appropriate? 
When we partake of communion together, we are not reenacting the sacrifice of Jesus. We are remembering it and we are receiving it unto ourselves. We remember it with our heart and our minds. And by faith, we take it and receive it into ourselves and say, we need this. I need this to live upon. But it is not a reenactment. It is not a repeat of a perfect sacrifice that was offered once for all. I mean, that's why he says there in verse 26, he says, he then would have need to suffer often since the foundation of the world. In other words, if Jesus' sacrifice wasn't perfect, if it had to be repeated, then it would be repeated endlessly throughout all eternity. This brings up sort of a second difficult thing that I need to speak to you about. You know, last week I spoke to you about how heaven is important. Now we should talk about heaven. And our text in Hebrews speaks about heaven. Now I need to talk to you about hell. How about that on one Sunday morning? I talk about the Roman Catholics and now I'm talking about hell. <laughs> I think if you have a heart for people and before God, hell is a difficult thing to talk about. Because if you take it serious, it's awesome. It's terrible. And I think God intends it to be terrible. And one of the things that troubles many people, and I don't blame if you, if it bothers you, one of the things that troubles people about the idea of hell and the biblical teaching of hell is this idea that the suffering of hell goes on forever. Friends, I think that this text helps explain to us why. This principle of sacrifice explains why the suffering of hell must go on forever for those who reject the atoning work of Jesus. Because there in hell, they have to pay the penalty of their sin. And an imperfect being can never make a perfect payment. Only a perfect being can make a perfect payment for sin. And of course, the only perfect being ever was Jesus. An imperfect being can never make a perfect payment. Therefore, if one must pay for their own sins in hell, how long does it take them to make a perfect payment? They can never make one. It's as if God would say this. You can be released from hell as soon as my justice is perfectly satisfied. But it can never be satisfied because there's only one place where justice was perfectly satisfied and that was at the cross and for those who reject jesus's work on the cross and have to pay the penalty of their sins themselves there's no end to that payment because it can never be perfectly satisfied friends this is a heavy doctrine and sometimes i I honestly i get a little offended when i'm talking with people about this and they get a little angry with me they'll say things like this Who are you to send somebody to hell? That almost brings tears to my eyes. Friend, I don't send anybody. I would never presume to do so. All I can tell you is what the Bible says. God is completely in charge of that. I have no responsibility for that whatsoever. Thank you, God. But listen, if the Bible says this, and if it says it plainly, must we not take it seriously? That heaven and hell are for real. And the justice of God must be perfectly satisfied. And a soul cannot be released from hell until the moment, until that debt, I should say, is completely paid, which is another way of saying never. 
Now look at verse 23. Now I've got to talk about New Age. Think about it. Roman Catholics, hells and new, hell and New Age right now in the same message. Verse 27. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Just as certainly as we die once and then face judgment, so Jesus only had to die once, not repeatedly to face judgment. Now, what I think is fascinating about this passage is I want you to notice the writer of the Hebrews is not trying to teach about incarnate, uh, reincarnation here. That's not the idea at all. Matter of fact, it's entirely a side point that he's making. This is the basic principle. Just as it is absolutely true that we die once and face the judgment, so it was absolutely true that Jesus only had to die once because he perfectly satisfied God's judgment. So he's not trying to make an argument about reincarnation, but he does without trying. Because this verse says very plainly, as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this is the judgment. Friends, I just have to tell you very plain that this idea of reincarnation, that somebody can be reborn again and reborn and reborn and get a second and a third and a dozen and a 20th and whatever chance that they have to repeat this endless cycle of life until they perfect it along the way. It's just not biblically true. The Bible says this, that this life is your one chance. Don't look for another chance beyond the grave. Now is the time to make it right with God. Now is the time to um, spare yourself that judgment by putting your trust in Jesus, in who he is and what he did for you. But now let's close on a happier note here. Verse 28, where he says this. He will appear a second time apart for sin for salvation. Now think about it. The appearing of Jesus for the first time, which we have the opportunity to celebrate in this blessed season. That's what the lights, that's what the the, the holiday flavor, that's what all these things draw our attention to. The appearing of Jesus for the first time. And in his first appearing, he dealt with sin. He died on the cross. He came and he finished that work. Now, when he appears the second time, It'll be to bring salvation for those who eagerly wait for him. By the way, did you like that? That it's assumed that those who are believers will be eagerly waiting for Jesus. I hope you're eagerly waiting for Jesus. I hope that's kind of a motto of your life is come quickly, Lord Jesus. That it can't happen soon enough for you and for me. Yes, this is what Jesus wants for us. And how were we ready? Friends, you're not ready for his second coming until you've received the Jesus of the first coming and what he did for you, in particular, on the cross. You know, in studying this week, I read a sermon by Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher of Victorian England. And he had a sermon titled The Blood Shedding, which was a very dramatic sermon, as you might imagine. And in that sermon, Spurgeon described three different fools. It was very powerful illustration. The first fool was a soldier on the field of battle. And the soldier's wounded. He's shot. The bullet goes right through him. And there he is wounded and the medics are attending to him. And this is what the soldier says. Who shot me? What kind of gun was it? Can you tell me the specifications of the gun? I want to know all about it. And what would you say to that poor soldier? He'd say, sir, you're a fool. Who cares about the gun or the bullet or any of that? You need medical attention. Get your problem fixed. 
The second fool that Spurgeon used to illustrate the message was the captain in command of a ship. And the ship is in a tremendous storm and it's about to go under and crash upon the rocks. And the captain is not at the wheel of the ship. No, where is he? He's in his own quarters, poring over charts, trying to determine where did this storm come from? Where did this storm come from? Captain, captain, please don't worry about where the storm came from. You're in the midst of the storm. You need to guide the ship to shelter in the midst of the storm. Then the third fool Spurgeon described was a man who was sick. And he's dying and he's about to go under the waves, not only of death, but he's also sick of sin. And he's about ready to go under the waves of God's justice. And yet, what is he troubled about? He's deeply troubled about the origin of evil. Friends, you know what? There's all sorts of theological questions that someone may address and discuss, and they have their place. There's a place for discussing the kind of gun that shot a person. There's a place for discussing where the storm came from. But you know what? At the end of it all, there's a solution offered by God to you for your problem of sin. You can wrap your head around all the difficulties, but you'd be a fool to pass up his solution. Now, in a few moments, we're going to receive communion together. And if you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, as we take communion, you're going to have the opportunity to do so. Pastor Keith Fortenberry is going to lead us in communion in just a few moments. But friends, let's prepare our hearts to receive this great work of Jesus. Not in a cliche sense, not in a magical sense, not in a superstitious sense, but to receive the blood of Jesus, his life and death poured out for us. Father in heaven, that's my prayer. I pray that every person in this room would avail themselves of what they most need right now. I can imagine, Lord, that there's people who all across this room, they feel they need a dozen different things. They need time. They need peace. They they, they need space. They need all sorts of resources on and on. But Lord, as real as those needs might be, first and foremost, We need to be connected with our Savior. And it's the work of Jesus on the cross that connects us with him. So Lord, set our hearts in a place right now to remember what Jesus did on the cross and to, by faith, receive it into ourselves. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.